The Air by Vita Sackville West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story One The Air. Seventeen. Of all the astonished people in that room, perhaps not the least astonished was the auctioneer. He had never seen Chase before, and naturally thought he had to deal with an entirely new candidate. He adjusted his glasses to stare at the solitary figure upright among the rows of seated people, standing with a trembling hand still outstretched. He had just time to notice, with concern, that Chase was deathly pale, his face carved and hollowed, before habit reasserted itself, and he checked the gone that had almost left his lips, to resume his chronicle of the bidding with thirty-one thousand guineas, any advance on thirty-one thousand guineas, and cocked his eyes at the Brazilian. The Brazilian, equally surprised, had never before seen Chase either. What was this fierce little man, who shot up out of the ground so turbulently, to dispute his prize? He had not supposed that it would be necessary to go beyond the thirty thousand. Nevertheless, he was prepared to do so, and to make his determination clear, he continued with the bidding himself, instead of leaving it to his solicitor. "'And five hundred, he said. Thirty-five thousand, said Chase. The sensation he would have created by escaping from the room half an hour earlier was nothing to the sensation he was creating now. But he was exalted far beyond shyness or false shame. He never noticed the excited flutter all over the room, or the extraordinary agitation of Nutley, who was saying, "'He's mad! He's mad!' while frantically trying to attract the auctioneer's attention. Chase was oblivious to all this. He stood, feeling himself inspired by some divine breath, the room a blur before him, and a current of power, quite indomitable, surging through his veins. Infatuation! Genius! They must be like this, this certainty, this unmistakable purpose, this sudden clearing away of all irrelevant preoccupations. Vistas opened down into all the obscurities that had always shadowed and confused his brain. The secret was to find oneself, to know what one really wanted, what one really cared for, and to go for it straight. Wolverhampton? Moonshine! He was no longer pale, nor did he keep his eyes shamefully bent upon the ground. He was flushed, embattled, his nostrils dilated and working. But everyone else thought him crazy, people sober watching the vaingloriousness of a man drunk. Even the auctioneer allowed an expression of surprise to cross his face, and varied his formula by saying suavely, "'Did I understand you to say thirty-five thousand, sir?' Thirty-five thousand guineas are bid. Drunk, as a man drunk. Everything appeared smothered to his senses, intense yet remote, his head light and swimming. Everything at a great distance, the crowd around him, stirring, murmurous, but meaningless. The auctioneer, perched up there, a diminutive figure, miles away. Voices, muffled but enormously significant, conveying threats, conveying combat, all leagued against him. This was battle. All the faces were hostile, or so he imagined. He was glad of it. Fighting for his house? No, no. More, far more than that. Fighting for the thing he loved. Fighting to shield from rape the thing he loved. 
fighting alone, come to his senses in the very nick of time, even at this moment, when he needed every wit he had ever had at his command, he found time for a deep inward thankfulness that the illumination had not come too late or altogether passed him by. In the nick of time it had come, and he had recognized it, recognized it for what it was, and seized hold of it, and now, triumphantly, drunkenly, was holding his own in the face of all this dismay and opposition. Moreover, they could not defeat him. Bidding in these outrageous sums that need never be paid over, he was possessed of an inexhaustible fortune. Undefeatable! What confidence that gave him! The more hands turned against him, the better. He challenged everybody. He hardly knew what he was saying, only that he leapt up in thousands, and that in spite of their astonishment and fury, they were powerless against him. There was nothing criminal or even illegal in his buying in his own house if he wanted to. And then the end, that came before he knew that it was imminent, the collapse of the Brazilian, whose expression had at last changed from deliberate indifference to real bad temper, the voice of the auctioneer, suavely asking for his name and his address, and his own voice, giving his name as though for the first time in his life he were not ashamed of it and then Nutley, struggling across the room to him, snarling and yapping at him like a little enraged cur, quite vague and deprived of significance, but withal noisy, tiresome, and briefly perplexing. A Nutley disproportionately enraged, furiously gesticulating, spluttering at him, Are you going to play this damned fool game with the rest of the sale? And his answer, he supposed he had given an answer, because of the announcement from the auctioneer's desk, which hushed the noisy room into sudden silence. I have to inform you, gentlemen, that lot sixteen, and the succeeding lots, which include the contents of the mansion, also the surrounding park, have been bought in, and that the sale is therefore at an end. And in the midst of his bewilderment, the sensation of having his hand sought for and wrung, while he gazed down into Mr. Fairbrother's old rosy face, and heard him say, half inarticulate with emotion, "'I'm so glad, Mr. Chase. I congratulate you. I'm so glad. I'm so glad!' 18. Finally the blessed peace and solitude, when the last stranger, with the curious stare that was now common to them, had quitted the house, and the last motor had rolled away. Chase, leaning against a column of the porch, thought that thus must married lovers feel when after the confusion of their wedding they are at length left alone together. Certainly, with a wry twist to his lip, the events of the sale had tried him as sorely as any wedding. But here he was, having won, in possession, having driven away all that rabble, here he was, in the warmth, and in the hush that sank back upon everything after the ceasing of all that hubbub, here he was left alone upon the field after that reckless victory. Poor? Yes. But he could work. He would manage. His poverty would not be bitter. It would be sweet. He suddenly stretched out his hands, and passionately laid them, palms flattened, against the bricks, bricks warm as their own rosiness with the sun they had drunk since morning. Midsummer day, swallows skimming after the insects above the moat, 
their level wings almost grazed the water as they swooped midsummer day all the mellowness of black boys all the blood of the chases to culminate in this midsummer day a marvellous summer a persistently marvellous summer he remembered the procession of days the dawns and the dusks and the moon-bathed nights that had hallowed his romance he was inclined to believe that neither hatred nor its ugly kin could any longer find any place in his heart which had been so uplifted and had seen so radiantly the flare of so many beacons lighting up the fields of wisdom to cast off the slavery of the wolverhamptons of this world to know what one really wanted what one really cared for and to go for it straight wasn't that a good enough and simple enough working wisdom for a man to have attained simple enough when it did nobody any harm yet so few seemed to learn it black boys wolverhampton what was wolverhampton beside black boys what was the promise of that mediocre ease beside the certainty of these exquisite privations what was that drudgery beside this beauty this pride this quixotism thane gambled out fawning and leaping round chase as fortune opened the door of the house will you be having dinner sir he asked demurely in the dining-room or in the garden this evening end of story one end of sections seventeen and eighteen